0: By becoming a monthly patron you'll also receive our weekly newsletter
1: welcome to the quillette podcast i'm jonathan k so the world was supposed to end in 1916 and then again in 1925 and again in 1942 and 1975 and 2000 and yet here we are still around despite all those supposed armageddon's All of those predictions of Apocalypse came to us courtesy of the Jehovah's Witnesses, who are politely described as a millenarian, restorationist, Christian denomination with non-Trinitarian beliefs distinct from mainstream Christianity. What this means in regular words is that these are not ordinary Christians, and they don't believe ordinary things. Blood transfusions, for one thing, are a big problem for Jehovah's Witnesses. Amber Scora is a Canadian writer, now living in New York City, who grew up as a Jehovah's Witness, and then left when she was an adult, after spending years preaching the Gospel in North America and China. In a new book, Leaving the Witness, recently excerpted at Quillette.com, Scora writes about the sad, funny, strange, and fascinating world she inhabited as a Jehovah's Witness. In September, I sat down with her at a restaurant in Manhattan to talk about her book, and her life here are excerpts from our conversation before we talk about why you left the Jehovah's Witnesses tell me about the things you enjoyed and appreciated about life in that religious community
2: it's interesting because I think that the most predictable answer to this question and the one that many people would say is that they liked having the community but actually for me it wasn't that I definitely had some people that I really loved in the organization But since leaving, I kind of almost feel that my community is better now in the sense that it took some time to get here, where I had friends in the real world now. But now my friendships feel like they're based around things that we, people, the people in my life have in common or like shared values and such. Whereas when you're in a religious community that's so closed and you've been in it since you were born, you're sort of there together by circumstance. So for me, it wasn't so much this idea of just like having a place in the world that did it for me, but what did it for me was that ever since I was a small child, I used to be kind of, I don't know, kind of a weird child, but I always had these really existential questions about life and I was a pretty spiritual kid and I just wanted the answers to all kinds of things that nobody ever really talked about to kids. And when I went to the Jehovah's Witnesses meeting, starting around the age of seven or so with my grandmother, here was a place where people were telling me everything about life and the future and kind of giving you this sense of safety in a world that you know, as a child, you don't understand very much. So as I got older, <clears throat> to be honest, the thing that I liked the most was just having all the answers, like that religion, Jehovah's says, has the answer to every question that might ever bother you in life. They've found a way to explain it all.
1: What's, what's our purpose on the earth? Yeah. Uh, where did the earth come from? Why do system? we
2: die? Why is there suffering? Um, all of these things. And I really enjoyed the, the very comfortable feeling you have when you have all the answers.
1: Here on the podcast, we've spoken to some people who were Hasidic Jews. And there's someone here in New York City. His name is uh, Neftali Moster. I yeah. believe that's how you pronounce his name who's been quite active in representing former Hasidic Jews or maybe they're still Hasidic Jews, but they have somehow been excommunicated from the community or they've Mm -hmm. left the community or they have complaints about the community. Uh, And they will say that they miss this, this sense of community that they had when they were still in the warm embrace of those people. Uh, Have you had a chance, especially here in New York City, where there's such a large Jewish community, to compare your experiences of leaving the Jehovah's Witnesses with people who have left uh, the Hasidic or or other ultra-Orthodox Jewish communities?
2: I have, actually. When I enrolled in college, when I moved to New York, seeing as Jehovah's Witnesses can't go to college, I started to go to university when I got out. And in one one of the first classes I took, there was a young man who was had left the Hasidic Jews and he had, he was probably like 21 years old and he already had three children and we just ended up in the same English 101 class. Uh, and you know, a few times he, it was funny. He, we right away, I don't know how we even found out that both of us had this shared history, but we did. And it was very similar. I think his case was a little more extreme than mine because he told me that he didn't even go to a normal high school. Like in order to get into university, he had to teach himself math.
1: Well, in many cases, uh, my understanding is that at the yeshivas, uh, they they will teach in Yiddish, they will have Hebrew instruction, but even basic things like English grammar or like algebra, that sort of thing, uh, isn't taught.
2: That's right. Yeah. So it was, you know, it was similar. We definitely were in the same position, although, you know, he gave me a ride home from class a couple times and I got into his car and he had, you know, like three car seats in the back. So there was that difference between the two of us. Uh, But he faced a lot of the same pushback and persecution from his community that I mean if you can call it persecution but just this idea of like people vilifying you or trying to get you back in using any means necessary um, and also just this sense of trying to start a new life and in, with this new you know, identity that you have as a non-religious person after being raised in such a strict community. Can we talk
1: a little bit about the hostility to, uh, to higher education that exists within Jehovah's Witnesses because this is not universal to all offshoots of Christianity or, or Christian sects. You know, there are many evangelical Christians. They, they start their own universities. And in fact, you, you get even people in, in the sciences who declare themselves to be uh, Christians, and they might even be creationists, but they, they firewall that from their academic research. Uh, but they find a way to inhabit the world of higher education while also being extremely spiritual. Mm-hmm. Why is it the case that in the Jehovah's Witnesses that you're not the first person who has told me that they in some cases will just forbid people from going to college. Why why is that?
2: Well, I think it's twofold. The first thing that you have to understand is that the Jehovah's Witnesses are an apocalyptic religion. So they believe that this is the last days and that any day now God's going to bring an Armageddon to the earth and destroy all the people who are not Jehovah's Witnesses. So if you truly believe that, it affects everything that you do in life if you really thought the world was ending why would you go to college why would you save for retirement why would you even have children maybe i mean there's there's so many aspects of your life that that apocalyptic thinking affects and but education is one of them but that's almost
1: like a strange mirror image to hedonism where your your event horizon is so short that like if you took that in another direction you'd just be kind of uh, you'd be the opposite of religious you'd just be a complete libertine
2: totally right. yeah. <laughs> but the only difference is, is that because you're a Jehovah's witness and you know that the only way to salvation is by staying a Jehovah's witness you have to follow right. the rules okay. if right. you want to be on the other side of that There's armageddon like if okay. you don't want to be killed got it so essentially you know the from the leadership the reasoning that we would hear week in and week out from childhood was that You know, it's the last days. Why would you do anything besides things that advance God's will? So if you were to go to college, you're just basically investing in a future in this old world that's about to be destroyed. So that's a really powerful line of thought if you are a true believer. The secondary part, which I see more now, is that you're taught to critically think in university. And so that is just death to the Jehovah's Witness doctrine, because the second you start analyzing it or thinking about it with any kind of perspective other than the perspective you're taught from birth um, it's going to fall apart and it does fall apart
1: you talk about the jehovah's witnesses being apocalyptic and 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 in your book you have a very um, educational chapter about how the movement was formed and how the movement kept going despite the falsification of the original prediction of apocalypse Mm -hmm. because I, i believe it was during the 20th century the the apocalypse was supposed to come, and yeah. Uh, yeah, here, we times, yeah. <laughs> here we are talking. A few times, yeah. Uh, here we are talking, but for organizational reasons, the the movement kept going uh, and still exists today. But to a certain extent, all Christian sects, all Christian denominations are in some way apocalyptic. Jesus will return to earth. There's going to be some kind of confrontation. Uh, but, but even in, in the Jewish faith, of which I'm a part, uh, there are some parts of the Old Testament that are apocalyptic in tone, why is the apocalyptic sentiment in the Jehovah's Witnesses, why is it so dominant in a way mm-hmm. that, you know, isn't the case for, you know, Protestants or Catholics who, I mean, who, if if they're, you're observant, you you do believe that end days eventually will come.
2: Yeah. I think what we're looking at here is sort of a continuum of mind control. So obviously, all levels of religion require some form of indoctrination. You've come to believe something from something you're taught. But for the Jehovah's Witnesses to survive in the form that they do, they need to keep people glued to the organization. And one of the most effective ways of doing that is by mixing fear. Because I'll tell you, the idea of apocalypse to a young child, especially when you grow up in the Witnesses, is a really fearful, scary thing. So the way, the the glue I would say of this organization is that they take equal measures of fear and then on the other side, mix it with love. And so the only way to keep the love and ward off the fear is by staying with the organization so it's, it is a really loving organization like Jehovah's, people, Jehovah's Witnesses are wonderful when you're in it you never think that there's anything wrong it's only when you try to stray that you start to realize you've run into trouble and
1: just to be clear for people who haven't read your book you speak in very affectionate and sometimes funny ways about uh, family members of yours who weren't Jehovah's Witnesses
2: yeah I mean I was very happy as a Jehovah's Witness don't get me wrong um, but it's not until you start to stray that then you sort of run into the dark side of, of it. You know what I'm saying? But essentially the reason why this, these, this apocalyptic thinking works so well is that it's just more extreme. There's like a real sense of palpable fear that if you stray from the organization in any way, you're going to be on the outside. And that's not just only in some far off distant judgment day. It's also because they practice excommunication or disfellowshipping, as they call it, which means that when you stray, if you become on the outside, which had happened to me before in my life when I was younger, um, and Armageddon comes, you're you're going to be destroyed. So
1: that term disfellowshipping is creepy. It sounds a lot like um, cancel culture that we talk about in, yeah. in modern secular social media uh, discussions about ideology were you ever on the other side of that process, uh, you know, when you were still a practicing Jehovah's Witness, that, that you had to separate yourself from friends and family members and, you know, tear up their contact information because they had been excommunicated?
2: Yes, I've been on both sides. When, as I mentioned, when I, was, when I was younger, I was disfellowshipped because I had premarital sex when I was 19 years old. So I had been disfellowshipped and that during that time, my father died. And uh, I went to his funeral at the Kingdom Hall. But when you're disfellowshipped, no one can talk to you. And you have to sit in the back row and sort of leave as soon as any services are over, whether it's a meeting or a funeral. So at my dad's funeral, I went, attended, and then just left right after. And no one spoke uh, to and me. You, and
1: you talk about this sort of thing in your book.
2: Yeah. And then, you know, some people think like, oh, that's so cruel. But this is what I'm talking about when I talk about the the degrees of mind control. In that because I had been taught that this was the proper punishment for what I had done. I didn't think that anything was wrong with the fact that I was at my dad's funeral and no one talked to me and afterwards too. I was completely alone because I was excommunicated, disfellowshipped from the community. And I just had to deal with all of that as a 19 year olds my father's death by myself. But you know, at the time I just felt like this was what I deserved. I mean, I had committed sin and I couldn't corrupt the congregation. And so I needed to be on the outside. Now, conversely, yes, I came back in because I didn't want to die at Armageddon and I believed that I was in the truth. So I eventually worked my way back to the congregation and got reinstated. Um, and then, you know, there was a case in my kingdom hall in Vancouver where uh, a man who was gay was disfellowshipped for being gay. <laughs> and he ended up hanging himself in the woods in, at UBC, obviously because he couldn't hang himself at home because no one would have found him. No one would speak to him. So, I've been on both sides, yes.
1: That's a a horrifying story.
2: Yeah, the shunner and the shunny. um, And I remember really clearly at the time when this man, brother, we called him, um, killed himself. It's the strangest thing, the way that you can be a really sensitive, I'm pretty sensitive, intuitive, like caring individual, but when you're in a group like this, you find ways to cut off certain feelings because you have to, or you block certain thoughts that you might have you know when he died obviously I was like this does not feel right (laughs) that this man was ostracized and as a result killed himself but we had to just move on that was you do anything that you need to do to stay in because your survival depends on it.
1: And it's sort of a, I guess, an in-out situation. It's not like... Yeah, there's you no know, gray. <laughs> you're 75% in good standing. It's you're either yeah. in good standing or not, I suppose.
2: It's not super authoritarian in the way that, like, the elders in the congregation are policing what you do every minute because they don't have to because you police yourself. It also
1: sounded a little passive-aggressive, the way things were done. You know, especially the way you talked about intrafamilial religious Yeah enforcement that maybe some Jews and Catholics will recognize from their own background.
2: Uh, I think so. And I don't even know if the right word is passive aggressive. What it feels like when you're in an organization that is basically using mind control to keep people in, however subtle it might be, is that you just police yourself. You are the one that is the agent of you still find yourself yourself,
1: do you still find yourself falling into those mental habits? No.
2: <laughs> okay. The w- I don't know. Maybe I do have a conscience, so you could call it that. But I think for me, when I shed my religion, there was so much that felt wrong You're that ready. I had suppressed for so long. You were ready to go. That I was ready. So and didn't, it, didn't, it wasn't something that I carried forward so with me.
1: Let's talk a little bit about your work in Asia. Because you went to China, yes, um, where you were uh, working for the Jehovah's Witnesses. that to me is an interesting controlled experiment because of course, in, in North America, in the, the Christian tradition, there's this uh, long uh, legacy of original sin and uh, excommunication and all this sort of thing. But you were going to a society that of course there's, there's many Christians in China, but they don't have that deep-seated cultural legacy. Of original sin. Mm-hmm. Did they fall into these same habits of mind that you're de- describing? Did you notice any cultural differences between the way they implemented Jehovah's Witnesses doctrine and what you had seen in North America?
2: From my own standpoint, I don't think I consciously realized parallels, but when I moved to China to be a missionary, here I was living under this kind of authoritarian government. and But, but the Chinese people you were
1: there with in a sense they it was two overlapping authoritarian systems yeah. they had an overlapping political system yeah and then they embraced of their own volition they are also embracing this other authoritarian creed that's weird
2: well interesting thing is that in a way they're primed for this doctrine and told to listen for a couple reasons but first how can, of all but how
1: can you obey two masters
2: well first of all culturally um in china there's a lot of respect for a teacher so when I would sit teaching my Bible students, they were the best students I'd ever had because they don't really challenge you much. And for a Jehovah's Witness, that's great because, you do not you can be challenged, but you only want to be challenged so far because how far can you go before the doctrine falls apart? Um, but I will say this. It wasn't like a ton of people were becoming Jehovah's Witnesses in China. So my experience, and what started to kind of wake me up too, was that I would sit across from my students and they were so respectful and, as I say, they showed a lot of deference to me as a teacher because that was the dynamic that, you know, our relationship had started under. But I'm a pretty sensitive person. I, I would notice that as they were studying this stuff, some of it seemed crazy to them, and...
1: Give me an example of something that seemed crazy to them.
2: Well, there's a few things. I mean, for one thing, I mean, there are some Josephine's doctrines that are kind of crazy. (laughs) So, for example, they have this whole chain of scriptures from Daniel, Old Testament and New Testament, that they've put together and calculated the times and the half of times. And they arrived at 1914 being this year that was significant in basically the history of God's kingdom. And that that was the beginning of the last days. So sitting there, you know, across from people, as you say, who did not have a tradition of Christianity. This was actually one of the things that woke me up because I could see that actually it was kind of hard for them to accept it. It wasn't actually easy. And part of what I realized was wrong was that this sounded like we were talking about aliens to them. And so what that triggered for me was thinking, wait a minute, if God says that everyone, which the Bible says, you know, like everyone can be God's children and that we all have basically this equal shot at salvation. It's about our heart condition. And that was my true belief. I believed that. That's why I went to China. I was like, there must be people there. <laughs> uh, but if if the very premise of religion even is foreign to you, I mean, the chance of you like stepping across the line and just like jumping into this Joe's Witness very fundamentalist religion are very small. Because you, you know, for example, Josephus's best recruitment numbers are in Latin America. Because, as you say, there's a lot of Catholic people, and that they can kind of relate to that spectrum of
1: so they're not converting the guilt kind of transferring. and transferring. <laughs> yeah. They're transferring exactly. pre-existing cultural system. Yeah. Yeah.
2: and so as I sat there with my Chinese Bible students, who really, to be honest, were not making much progress. They were really deferential and very good students, but I could tell they didn't really believe it. Most of them, I thought, why on earth would God not make it a level playing field? Like clearly at Armageddon, like bi- a billion Chinese people are going to die. But, you know, in America, maybe, you know, one in every 250 people is a Jehovah's Witness. And that, for me, really started to feel like this doesn't add up. It's, it's interesting you say
1: this because uh, there was a great podcast a few years ago. It was about a person who had been in a cult, a, a real cult. I mean, yeah. Jehovah's Witnesses has, has... It's like a soft cult. <laughs> well, it's a, it has <laughs> aspects of Christianity. And, yeah. you know, we, we can talk about... It's relationship to Christianity, but we're talking about like... Hardcore. Yeah, it was, you know, guy in a robe type thing, right? Uh, And there was a subplot within the podcast. It was fascinating where uh, it might have been the guy's mother. Anyway, there were these two women whose job was to translate the cult into, I think it was French. And so they'd spend weeks and weeks and weeks, you know, well, what's the right word for you know this part of heaven and what's the right word right. for you know the the wisdom of the great master and and after a while, I think one of them just said, oh my God, this is bullshit. Like, But it was the act of translation, yes. of putting it into words that somebody in another country would understand, that they had never sort of seen it from somebody else's eyes. It sounds like you had that experience in China, where you were seeing yes. your own faith from an outsider's perspective.
2: And also, it's interesting you bring up the language aspect, because I think that a large part of it was that I was speaking in Mandarin when I was teaching my Bible students. I had already spent, like, by the time I got to China, I had spent four years three years in taiwan i was pretty fluent by the time i got to shanghai and so mandarin is a language that for an english speaker requires you to basically excavate your mind it's not like spanish where you can just learn all the vocabulary and some grammar and translate even if you did that in chinese you knew all the words you knew that you you still they wouldn't understand what you were saying because it's a different way of thinking it comes from a different linguistic premise altogether so somehow there's this way of that speaking Mandarin and teaching these things to my students in a new language like this did make me hear it as if through new ears. And not only that cultural, the cultural side of it, but also the linguist side, linguistic side of it kind of combined together to make it become almost something that I could see in a detached way.
1: I find it amazing that you were able to become almost fluent in Mandarin, which is an incredibly difficult language, but it must be a subject of, of regret that you use this incredible language skill to, you know, instead of becoming head of the Shanghai office of McKinsey Consulting, that <laughs> you, you were teaching people about apocalypse. Since this time, have you used this incredible language skill you have to to other purposes?
2: Yes, I'll tell you where I use it now. I use it when I get Chinese massages <laughs> in Chinatown <laughs> and I go for okay. dinner. Yeah.
1: If anybody from McKinsey or uh, <laughs> yeah. Bain Consulting or Boston <laughs> Consulting Group is listening, uh, you know we have an, an underemployed uh, Chinese exactly. speaker. Yeah,
2: But I do say that I really miss speaking Mandarin because it's such a musical language. And I just loved speaking it every day. So it was a real loss when I left China to me that I didn't have the opportunities to speak Mandarin all the time. I I think
1: in your book, you expressed doubt whether there are any people in China today who are Jehovah's witnesses because of your ministry.
2: Yeah, I don't know for sure. I do know in my lifetime as Jehovah's witness, two people that I studied with did become Jehovah's witnesses and they are both Chinese, but one is from China, but I studied with her in Taiwan and the other one is Taiwanese. Um, there are definitely Jehovah's Witnesses in China, though, local people. Um, when you go out and, uh, and proselytize like this, Jehovah's Witnesses are very motivated. They're very organized. You get results. But
1: to the extent you're still in, in contact with those two people, you said you, you met them in Taiwan. Um, Are you tempted to like jump on their Facebook page and say, oh, that stuff I told you, not so much? Like, do you, or do you just, are you hands off? It's like, it's their life now? Like, what's your approach to these people?
2: Well, first of all, no one who is a Jehovah's Witness would ever talk to me or be on my Facebook page because the way that they view someone who left, an apostate, is as someone who is essentially evil, like an enemy. Even
1: though you taught them Jehovah's Witness doctrine.
2: So I'm sure it's strange for them that I left. Um, but you know, when I was in China, I did have a number of Bible students as I was slowly waking up. And that was an interesting process because I was the premise of my meetings with these people who became friends was that we were studying the Bible. And as I started to have doubts, I still met with them because this was all I'd ever done with my life. I didn't really know what else to do. So I would still go on my Bible studies, but slowly start to backtrack and tell them to question. And then the funny part is, is that this was actually what, sealed my fate which brought my doom was that one of my bible students told someone else another witness that i had told her to remember those things that i taught you in the book maybe you should just also check other sources and don't just believe everything Warning i said sign. Warning <laughs> and then sign. she she didn't mean anything she didn't know how our organization worked so she innocently told another sister that she knew that was a jehovah's witness and then Of course, that unraveled everything for me. And then it became known that I was an apostate.
1: Let's talk a little bit about the hole in a person's worldview that is left when you leave the Jehovah's Witnesses. I met two people in Toronto once. They were brothers who grew up in a Jehovah's Witness household. And they ended up going to college. And as a result, there was a rift with their family and their friends. And they said, oh, that's fine, we're going off to college, we're starting a new life. But they said that they didn't realize it at the time, but there was this hole in their consciousness where Jehovah's Witness ideas were. And they said that the second they set foot on campus, they were easy prey for the first person to hand them a pamphlet. And it so happened that the first people who handed them a pamphlet were evangelical Christians. Mm. So for the next five years, they became evangelical Christians because they were looking for for. They were trying to fill an appetite that they didn't know they had. Was that the case with you, that once you left the Jehovah's Witnesses, that you found yourself looking for some totalizing creed, religious or otherwise, that would supply the answers that, that Jehovah's Witnesses once supplied for you?
2: Yeah, I, I was different than those brothers. When I left, I was so done with organized religion that's not to say there wasn't a whole... But what about a
1: political doctrine that had a totalizing effect? You know, did you become like a Trump fanatic? Or, you know,
2: or you, or, 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 Thankfully, there was no Trump then, or, or who knows? Uh, <laughs> or, you know,
1: like some meditation movement. I mean, there are there is no shortage yes. of creeds that religious or otherwise can just like give you all the answers to life.
2: Do you know what I've noticed? I think what happens when people leave, it can go either one of two ways. It can go the way of your friends, the brothers. But my way was that... When I got to New York, I moved to New York shortly after I left The Witnesses. I remember that a friend invited me to an Amnesty International meeting. And I wanted to do good in the world. You know, a person who's motivated to go to China and preach to try and save people's lives obviously has something in them that they want to, like, help people. I did. So I go to this Amnesty International meeting. And the second I was in there, I was like, oh, my gosh, this feels like a cult. I got to get out of here. Like, I just couldn't stand the feel. Then I went to, like, a yoga class <laughs> even a yoga class started to feel culty to me so i almost developed this like hyper sensitivity to being in any situation where I felt like there was a leader at the front and everybody was going along without really necessarily questioning the leader. And I just always felt really uncomfortable in that environment. I just say you are like an
1: ideal Quillette leader <laughs> because we also hate dear leaders, except for our own dear leader, dear yeah, leader Claire leader That's always the way, right? Yeah.
2: And I think also another thing for me was that I had mentioned to you about how I never, the community was nice, but how it wasn't the thing that did it for me. I think that I'd really crave relationships that were formed on a really authentic basis that didn't have to do with some premise for being there. When I got to New York, the most important thing to me was to just find people that I felt like I was on some, could get on some level with, whether it was like intellectually or just, you know, a depth of friendship, a kindred feeling that didn't, revolve around a premise like it wasn't revolving around a running club or a yoga class or I didn't want that physical structure to dictate the people in my life anymore. And for me, it was turned out to be very successful. I mean, it's funny because now I have this I have the oddest collection of friends. You know, most people have friends that they made maybe in college or, you know, through a certain, you know, history that they have. So a lot of their friends, a lot of my friends in the writing world, all their friends are writers or editors. My friends are just like this smattering of weird people, (laughs) but it's, I really enjoy that because it's taught me so much. And not everyone is like me. I think a lot of it's about what your personality is like, because my own mother told me that the thing that kept her in the religion was the community because she was more of an extrovert and it was just that meant a lot to her. So I think that it's just that we're all, we all have different needs. I don't think there's one prescription for everything. I just, my personal belief is that anything when it gets too extreme, there's, I've never seen any, any sort of belief system or ideology religion or otherwise that when it got to the extreme, didn't get there, didn't turn dark in some way. We're is, just, we just can't live at the poles. We've got to find somewhere in the middle, I think.
1: One of the reasons I stopped going to synagogue as a Jew didn't have anything to do with high-flown questions about the nature of the world. I just found it really... I found it dull. I found it very boring. It re- is boring. Re- re- reading the same <laughs> prayers over and over.
2: I found religion a little boring, too.
1: But you seem like a very smart person. You've, you write books. Uh, you're obviously very mentally alive. How... Could you deal with, I guess I'm projecting here because I found it so tedious, but how could you just keep going over the same material week after week after week? Wasn't it just crushingly boring?
2: It was boring. I hated going to the meetings. Any chance I could not go, I would not go. And that's why when I moved to China, I was, when I discovered that in China, because we were illegal, our religion, that everything was done underground and there was only one meeting a week as opposed to three. I was over the moon, I was so excited because I did find it crushingly boring. However, because I believed it was the truth, I felt it was what I had to do. Now, the way, it's funny because I have the same brain that I had then and sometimes I wonder myself, how in the world did I believe that stuff? Like Now that I'm away from it 10 years, I, it seems absurd, a lot of it. It clearly has holes, it clearly uses aspects of mind control and like circular reasoning but I can tell you that honestly, when I first left, I was already in my early thirties and I started going to college. Sometimes my brain felt numb. Like, I do think that it, you do something to thought block, to stop yourself from leaving because the cost of leaving is so high that you kind of do dull yourself down. And then it was over the course of years that I remember when I first left, I even had a really bad memory. I, I kind of felt like I couldn't remember stuff. And then over the course of years of being out, I started going to school. You know, I had a job in the real world. I had really smart friends. I read a lot.
1: Are there therapists who specialize in people? There are
2: some, but I didn't have one at the time. But I did feel over this stretch of time that my brain started to wake up. And now like I'm 10 years older, but I feel like my brain is way sharper than it was 10 years ago because I just started to use it.
1: It's interesting that you're using the same kind of metaphors. Uh, you know, you're awakening, you're, you're coming alive. These are the metaphors that religious people themselves will use to, for people who come <laughs> into the faith, right? Like so true. There's a certain irony there. Uh, let me talk a little bit about the portrayal of strong religious movements in society some of these peripheral Christian sects, do they make common cause politically at all or, or socially? Do they organize resources at all? Because they mm. are, to a certain extent, ostracized by by mainline Christian yeah. sects?
2: Yeah, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, I didn't I always knew, I mean, the funny part about being a Jehovah's Witness, especially overseas, is that you constantly see Mormons out being missionaries but, like, too do you
1: high five each other like i mean no I, no no. they're
2: like our competition i remember a really really funny story one time i was in taiwan preaching and we always had this fantasy that you know people would pray to god for the truth and that we would show up at their door and there was always this sort of folklore in the religion because you know we really felt like we were god's people and he was guiding us and one time i knocked on a door in taiwan and a woman answered and she said oh you know i had just prayed last week for god to send me the true representatives because i want to find the true religion and i was over the moon but then she continued on and said and then a couple days later the mormons showed up so they got here first so i think that they must be the ones that god was sending (laughs) and i i remember being like no it can't be um but there's always a sense where there's not that many religions that you will see out proselytizing in this way so there was you know a certain kinship but of course when you are in a when you are a Mormon or you are a Jehovah's Witness, you believe that you are the true religion. So you don't feel kinship with other people who are out doing the same thing. You think that you're right and everyone else is wrong. So when I was in The Witnesses, I would say no, but since I've left and after my book came out, I ended up getting in contact with this ex-Mormon leader and he had me on his podcast. And then I was like a wave of people that were ex-Mormons who wrote me and got in touch and read my book and told me that they couldn't believe the parallels. One, one man wrote me, he, he said that he had been having doubts about his Mormon faith, but he would have been too scared to read anything that was written by an ex-Mormon. But he found my book and he thought, well, I can read this about a witness. And he said he had to keep reminding himself as he read that he wasn't reading about a Mormon, that he was reading about someone who was a Jehovah's Witness, because the parallels, the mechanisms that keep you in, the proselytizing, even that of itself is something that really affirms your faith. Even when people reject you, it, you're like, oh, well, we're taught that that's... Jesus said that his true followers would be vilified and rejected. All of the mechanisms are the same. So I can say that like now that I'm on the outside, yes, I do feel a real kinship to ex-Mormons because we came from the same tradition in a way, even though the beliefs are so different.
1: Mitt Romney, who's now a senator in the United States and was the Republican presidential candidate several election cycles ago, he was and I guess remains a mainstream political figure, Mm -hmm. despite the fact that, as many people emphasized at the time he ran for president, uh, that Mormonism has a lot of highly unusual doctrinal elements. In days of yore, they practiced polygamy. Uh, Within living memory of many people, it was an explicitly racist uh, Mm -hmm. sect of Christianity. Yet, the Mormon faith has attained a sort of mainstream identity within the United States, as evidenced by the fact that that Mitt Romney became uh, a presidential candidate for the Republicans, it's very difficult for me to conceive of a Jehovah's Witness.
2: No, it wouldn't happen.
1: But why is that, despite the fact that, as I said, if you look at the actual belief systems of Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, they're not, obviously they believe very different things, but the weirdness factor, if I may call it that, isn't so different.
2: Well, I think it's what you said. The key right there is that the systems are the same, but the beliefs are different. So where Mormons encouraged people to get a higher education, start businesses, you know, well, they have their
1: own university well, at one yeah. point. Yeah, it's okay.
2: Jehovah's Witnesses are the opposite. Jehovah's Witnesses are not even allowed to vote. So
1: Sorry, they're not allowed to vote. No. Wow.
2: So one of the main characteristics of the Jehovah's Witnesses is their separateness from the world. So they don't vote. They don't join the military. They don't run for political office. They also don't even as we spoke about go to university. We're taught not to have careers. It's because their approach is to sort of isolate and like live in this sort of parallel universe to the real world until Armageddon comes. I don't know if the Mormons what they believe the end game is. If I don't think they're apocalyptic in the same way. I think they believe in an afterlife. Let
1: me talk a little bit about some of the parallels again, you know, when you talk about opting out of mainstream society I'm thinking of to a certain extent the Haredim in Israel Mm -hmm. the ultra ultra orthodox Jews who live in Israel who uh, they don't serve in the military and to a large extent they've opted out of, of regular civic life and yet because of the strange politics in Israel, they have a strong voice uh, in the Israeli political system. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mormons, of course, you know, for generations in in Utah, you know, they had a whole political establishment there. Yeah. And to some extent, uh, maybe they still do. Have the Jehovah's Witnesses ever exerted themselves politically? You know, maybe this may sound like a weird question, but has there ever been talk of like Jehovah's Witnesses like a homeland somewhere? Or is there any equivalent to to Zionism?
2: No, because they... They think that the whole planet will be theirs after Armageddon. So that's you're getting to the bottom of it here. In that, that will
1: be a very thinly populated planet, though.
2: Yeah, but eventually, because they're gonna, no one's gonna die. Right. They believe Got people it. will live forever, like Adam and Eve. It's the idea is the paradise restored. So, but this is the, you've gotten to the bottom of it. In that, Jehovah's Witnesses are constantly keeping, like, separating themselves, trying to differentiate themselves, and the reason is is that. They don't build in this world because they don't think this world is gonna last. They think it's gonna end. And you know, everything. When you have that worldview, you see it everywhere. You see that that's gonna happen. You see that this world is ending. Trump is Trump is part of the fulfillment. Like,
1: you know, when I was a kid uh, up in the Laurentian Mountains, north of Montreal, uh, my my father had a friend who was Jehovah's Witness, and he was a wonderful handyman, and he was a carpenter, and he could. You know, he didn't go to college, and no one in his family did, but he could fix anything. You know, he'd obviously learned the trades. Yeah, um, that's what Jehovah's
2: Witnesses do, because they don't go to college, or they're, but, like, window clean, or house but, clean. <laughs> well, but,
1: but your relatives, who uh, who are still in the Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, what, what do they do with their lives now, professionally?
2: Everyone that I know that's a Jehovah's Witness, including myself, works... The minimum possible and tries to preach as much as they can now obviously some people have families and they do work full-time but let me give an example the people that I was friends with when I was a Jehovah's Witness were window cleaners they were housekeepers sometimes they were part-time secretaries um they just it's a, it's like a subsistence living and This has been problematic because everyone was told that Armageddon was going to come in their lifetime. My mom was told she wouldn't even go to high school because that's how close Armageddon was. So, you know, my mom has got no savings. She's now retired, like older, but has no retirement fund. It's, you know, it's, it causes generational poverty. And there is a lot of chosenesses that are very poor as a result.
1: Everyone focuses on the blood transfusion issue because that's the most dramatic manifestation of religious doctrine interfering yeah. with, with modern life. It sounds to me, and I'm going back to that, that horrible story you, you told me about uh, the gay man who was Jehovah's Witness and, and hung himself, that there's a lot more pain and suffering that are caused behind closed doors that don't get attention uh, rather than the blood transfusion issue, which raises, you know, you see that in the papers once every couple yeah. of years because there's some high-profile case. And it involves children in many cases. Mm -hmm. So did you write your book to raise awareness about that? Or do you want your book to
2: be interpreted
1: purely as a personal story?
2: I never wrote it as a book of activism. I wrote it as a memoir. I mean, I like books. I like reading. I like writing. However, I... I tried to be fair in the book. I didn't write it in a sensationalistic way, but I also wanted to be really honest. And one of the reasons is that you would be hard-pressed to find a book by a Jehovah's Witness who left. Because when we're in the religion, we're taught that the worst sin you can commit is being an open apostate. It's worse than being a murderer. It's worse than being a child molester. Because that is the sin that God won't forgive. So even if you leave, as I did, and deprogram. And I didn't believe that, you know, I was going to be, you know, condemned by God anymore for writing. I still had a hard time embodying that title, the apostate, the mentally diseased is what they call them. They have all kinds of terminology they use to scare people away from reading anything or writing anything about their religion. So that is something that is really, I cannot explain to you the amount of guts it takes to overcome the fear of being that person—that's so it evil. Actually, it actually—it
1: sounds very difficult, uh, and it sounds in some way analogous to former Scientologists. Yeah, it's scary.
2: Uh, and al- although the devil's is like they're not scary people, I'm not afraid in the sense that like someone's going to attack me. Um, what it's just more like of an internal identity that you have. In order to get to the point where you can write honestly and openly about it, it takes a lot of work, and also because. Everyone that I used to know already didn't speak to me, for the most part, because I'm an, I've am i left, I'm on the outside now, and they shun me. But still to kind of think that the, even though I don't think of myself as mentally diseased, to think that the people I still love, even though I don't see them, family members and friends, would think of me that way was hard. So ultimately, I, I think I just wanted to do it as well, because I didn't want to be ruled by that fear.
1: Has there been the Jehovah's Witness equivalent of a fatwa against reading your book?
2: No, but there's like an, there's a constant underlying low current fatwa against anything Have that's you heard critical from, of the witnesses. Have you heard
1: from Jehovah's Witnesses who have read your book?
2: I have. Um, mainly I've heard from ex-Jehovah's Witnesses. Most Jehovah's Witnesses would never be so bold as to get in touch with me because
1: But would they be so bold as to buy and read your book?
2: I think secretly, yes. And I have heard from a couple of people who were actually people I knew in the past who when they saw my book got in touch with me and told me that they felt the same way, but they were not leaving because you're held hostage to, you know, losing everything in your life if you leave. So there's people who are in the Joe's Witnesses no longer believe in it, but don't leave, because leaving means you lose your family. Oftentimes, Witnesses because it's such a close community, they have like a cleaning business and all of their employees are witnesses. So if they leave, they will lose their livelihood and this type of thing. So I have heard from people who are like covertly still in, but not really mentally in.
1: Amber Scora, thank you for joining us on the Quillette podcast.
2: Well, thank you for having me.
0: If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron